This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. These days, it seems as if everyone who is young wants to be older, and everyone who is old wants to be younger. Teens and tweens are in a mad race to reach the legal drinking age. Models and magazines are 14 but made up to look like adults, and young members of MySpace pretend to be older in order to appear cool. Meanwhile, more people than ever before are trying to look younger. The cosmetic surgery industry is currently a $15 billion industry just in the United States. Last year alone, over 12 million youth-inducing beauty procedures were performed, including over 300,000 eyelid lifts. Most of my life, I wanted to be older. Somehow, I felt that older was happier, and when I was younger, I would fantasize all sorts of scenarios for my future. Whenever I did, the imaginary storylines included a swanky pad to live in, an exotic boyfriend who spoke Spanish, and really fabulous white shag carpeting. I was so consumed with growing up, I recall feeling as though I achieved something special just by going into the third grade. I'll never forget the few months before school started that year. I spent the summer at sleepaway camp, and as I made my way from the canteen to the cabin I shared with a gaggle of eight-year-old girls, I remember feeling a profound sense of pride at my made-up milestone. As I watched the sun slice and bounce its way across the shallow little lake that connected to the campground, I planned my very grown-up first day of school outfit in my mind. When I was about 13 or 14 years old, I stumbled upon a copy of my father's Playboy subscription, and when no one was looking, I snuck the magazine into my room, opened it right up to the centerfold, and gaped. I had never seen a grown-up woman look quite that grown-up before, and I couldn't believe that I would ever, ever, ever look that way. After I analyzed all of the pictures, I started reading about Miss January or Miss July or whatever month it happened to be and found out everything I could ever possibly want to know about this particular playmate's likes and dislikes and what turned her on and off in the little handwritten survey that accompanied the photographs. I was riveted by the elaborate details of this totally foreign creature as I evaluated her vital statistics, including her measurements, her weight, and her astrological sign. When I got to her age, I did a double take. She was only a few years older than me. How was this possible? How could she look so sexy and so alluring and ethereal? How could she look like such an adult? In my wildest, most rampant imagination, I couldn't conceive of ever looking that grown-up, no matter how grown-up I got. Last week, the reverse occurred twice. 
The first was while making my way through the new show at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, Design and the Elastic Mind, with my friend Paul. As I was wandering through the exhibit, he motioned me over to an installation he was admiring. As we stood marveling at the work, Paul smiled and pointed down. When he saw I was confused by what he was smiling at, he directed me to the age noted on the plaque in front of the piece. The artist was born in the 1980s. We shook our heads in disbelief and considered how amazing it must feel to have a piece of artwork in a museum while still in one's 20s. But privately, I felt jealous, envious, and old as I realized that at 46 years old, I could easily be the artist's mother. The second instance occurred while browsing through a magazine store and coming upon a recent copy of Playboy. Having not leafed through the issue in decades, I picked out one of the rack and turned to the centerfold, and once again, I was shocked by what I saw. First of all, I couldn't imagine where all of her pubic hair went, and I wondered if she felt chilly without even a landing strip to warm her. When did sexy turn into completely hairless? Furthermore, I couldn't believe that this particular playmate was born in 1987. 1987. In 1987, I was grooving to Madonna in Danceteria and getting ready to get married. This did not seem possible. I'm not exactly sure when exactly the tables turned on what we wish for as we age. What is the tipping point when age goes from being something coveted to something to scorn? At what point in one's life does age change from being a desirous aspiration to a dreaded monster? Some people say that age is a state of mind, but I'm in the monster camp. A few days ago, I watched the movie In the Valley of Elah, and I found a strange comfort in the way Tommy Lee Jones counsels a young boy about being scared with a story about David and Goliath. This is what he says. The first thing David had to fight was his own fear. He beat that. He beat Goliath. Because when Goliath came running, David just planted his feet, took aim, and waited. Just a few more steps, and Goliath would have crushed him, and he let fly with that rock. Do you know how much courage that takes? That's how you fight monsters. You lure them in close, and you look them in the eye, and you smack them down. Perhaps it has to do with expectations. Maybe I'm feeling old simply because I'm not as young as I used to be, and what scares me, and that scares me, in the same way that monsters do. Perhaps I am doomed to want what I can't have, and perhaps it is all about perspective. Last night, while surfing through the latest news about the race to the White House, I started reading an article attempting to deconstruct why Barack Obama is so popular with young people. The author of the article suggested age might be a factor. After all, he was the youngest, most vibrant, and most charismatic candidate of the group. When I realized that I had no idea how old Senator Barack Obama actually was, I looked it up and was confronted by the odd realization that we are exactly the same age. I am exactly the same age as the man likely to be the next president of the United States. So maybe, if I'm lucky... There's hope for me yet. 
Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Stefan Bucher. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Stefan Bucher is a man possessed. When an idea pops into his head, he can't stop until he makes it real. Over the years, this has led him to move from his native Germany to Southern California, where he got himself a degree from a killer art school. It pushed him to work as an art director at one of the world's best ad agencies in one of the world's wettest cities. It also got him fired from that same agency less than a year later. He then moved back to Los Angeles and became the man behind the 344 Design Empire, He has created CD covers for just about every major record company. He has designed albums for Sting and Whitney Houston. He once rode in an elevator with Hunter S. Thompson. He has designed work for the painter David Hockney. In 2004, the Art Directors Club of New York declared him a young gun, and he wrote and designed the gratuitously ambitious book, All Access, the Making of 30 Extraordinary Graphic Designers. These days, he films himself making inkblot monsters for his runaway blog, DailyMonster.com. The first 100 Daily Monsters are collected in the book, 100 Days of Monsters, which is hitting bookstores this week. Welcome, Stefan. So nice to have you it's here. It's nice to be here, Debbie. So first, tell me about Hunter S. Thompson and riding in the elevator. <laughs> You know what? It was it was completely by chance. I was going to uh, a printing mixer, a, a printer. Mi- Ooh, that sounds really fun. I know. And um, went into the elevator, and I'd seen him outside, and I thought, oh, he looks like Hunter Thompson, except twenty years older than the most recent photo I've seen. Uh huh. And um, but I, you know, the, the code in LA is you you get to make eye contact with somebody and sort of acknowledge their celebrity, but you don't get to speak to them. Yeah, no, that's the code in New York as well. So um, I just went into the elevator, but then um, a hand reached in the minute the door closed, and it was Mr. Thompson. And we actually, through a number of coincidences, we ended up going up and down in the elevator three times in a row. And on the third time, I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but, you know, are you Hunter Thompson? Well, why did you go up and down three times in a row? Oh, um, because... I didn't have money for it to get into the party and I had to go to the ATM. <laughs> really, really mundane reason. I wish it was something more interesting. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and he accompanied you for those three trips? I think he, he was either confused or had also forgotten something. <laughs> Great minds scatter alike. <laughs> it's, uh, I, it's my hope, anyway. <laughs> reading, reading that little bit of trivia about you reminded me of a time that I, I rode in an elevator with Liza Minnelli. And hey. it was, again, one of those things where, uh, you know, you're not supposed to acknowledge that you're in the presence of alleged greatness. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then, because I wasn't noticing her, she started to um, sing. You know, she had her people all around her, her posse and bodyguards and whatever, and she started singing in the elevator. It was her, her posse, and me. And I couldn't help then but look at her and have to say something. I don't remember what I said, but it reminded me of that story. That's too funny because Hunter Thompson, the whole time I was standing in the elevator with him, was novelizing. Really? No, no, I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> you got me there. So so let's talk about you. First of all, why, what's 344? What is the significance of 344? Well, the original significance is that the studio is at the intersection of the 210 and 134 freeways here in Los Angeles. And so I've always... I just add things randomly. 
and 344 seemed like a nice name. I wanted a name that was um, that was relatively free of meaning. Uh-huh. I didn't want it to be, you know, Bucher Design Works or something like that, where three, four years in, I'd go, oh, why did I pick that? Now, I read that yeah. you made crop circles in the snow with your logo in an effort to, when the morning came, have people wonder if aliens had actually come and made these crop circles with your logo. And then because it was snowing, the snow actually filled in the markings that you made, and so the whole thing was kind of ruined. I know. Um, Why did you do that? (laughs) Wouldn't you? (laughs) I don't like to be cold or wet, so probably no. I, you know what? I don't either. But I was visiting my folks in Germany, so I didn't have a choice. Uh huh. And I, you know, I was my. Wait, my... Well, you didn't have a choice. What do you mean you didn't? You, one has a choice between deciding to go out and making crop circles of your logo in the middle of the night or not. No, no, that's true. But I mean, I didn't have a choice about being cold and wet, so I thought I might as well do something productive. Ah, okay. Um, and I and my sleeping rhythms are odd. So in Germany, because of unions, everything closes down at six or eight p.m. So I would actually oversleep my option for food. <laughs> and the only way to get it was to actually uh, walk a mile and a half to the gas station to get candy, uh-huh. which to me is you know, a valid investment. Oh, absolutely. And so on the way, I'd notice the fresh snow, and I'd see, I saw all these great courtyards with unbroken white. And, of course, to the designer's mind, you can't resist that. Right. And I thought, oh, what kind of, you know, what kind of graphic can I put here? And, you know, being the egomaniac that I am, the only thing I could think of was my own logo. And so how long did it take you to do? It's, it takes a little while, actually. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to make those big circles. And I had to plot it out how to get from the circle into the 344 in the center so that I wouldn't make a little connecting line. I wouldn't have a little production flash. How did you do that? Um, the point of the outermost four actually comes very close to the circumference. And so from there, I just hopped. Uh-huh. And no one caught you? No, no one, one caught me. Well, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. And then in the morning you realized that yeah, it had been filled by the snow that came after. I know, damn snow. But it could have probably just made like a little bit of an indentation, no? It was completely gone. It was oh, very sad. so sad. Yeah. So um, I know that you've done a lot of work in the record business, and, I, and don't worry, we're definitely going to be talking about monsters, but I just want to <laughs> have, a, have a little bit of, of uh, background before we get into your current work. Um, so I know you worked for uh, record companies, but I, I found it quite interesting that despite having done work for Sting, or maybe because you've done work for Sting, he actually described your work as fucking ugly? He did. And now that was that before he hired you, and that's the reason he hired you, or was that after he hired you and saw what you did for him? No, this was definitely after he saw what I did for him. So you got fired by Sting? Uh, no, I didn't get fired. So he um, liked your work I, anyway. No, I had. A, you know what? I had a very, very excellent creative director between me and Sting's management and Sting. Um, I don't get to meet the people; they just slide the work under my door. Uh-huh. And then I slide the work back out. So what did you get, um, like a fax from Sting that said, fucking ugly? I, I got word from the creative director who was very wonderful and very diplomatic, um, Joe Mamanitzberg, and Joe said, well, you know, we may want to reconsider this particular direction, and it didn't really go over that great. And I said, well, what did he actually say? He said, well, he said it was fucking ugly. 
Uh-huh. And I was so proud of that. You and, were? Oh, I would have been, like, suicidal. But, but that's... Oh, you know what? I actually love Sting, and that was the reason I grew my hair out in the 80s, so he has a lot to answer for anyway. Ah, I see. Um, so it was more of an homage. Yeah, it was at that point an homage, and then it sort of just became a follicular disaster. And then I, I also read that Steve Jobs uh, describes your work as a fucking happy meal. Yes. So again, well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, well, I like Happy Meals. I choose to see it as a good thing. I good. thought it was entertaining. It made for, it makes for a nice little anecdote. So, so what happened? Why did you do that? Um, you know what? I just I knew that they had the sort of white on white aesthetic covered, and so I just tried to do something a little different. And I put in some of the bubbles that I'd made for Step Magazine as well. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he felt that it looked indeed like a fucking Happy Meal. Now, would people say? disparaging things about your work. I mean, I know it, it, it's sort of a funny anecdote now, um, or at least I think it is. But do you, do you feel hurt? Do you feel, I mean, how do you, how do you respond when people don't like something that you've done? When it's, when it's something at that level, I actually just think it's funny because, I mean, I'm not going to change my work because of it. Have you ever been tempted to change your work because of it? Not, it's not really an option. Um, there's a, my work has sort of evolved really consistently over a long period of time. And this is just what I do. I mean, that's, if, you know, and I don't want to give your callers any ideas, but I mean, if somebody calls in and says, wow, your voice sounds really stupid, um, <laughs> I'm not going to suddenly that. change it. Uh, well, okay, that, that makes sense. Now, um, in terms of your style, you, you've, you've actually described your style as, Gratuitously intricate and shamelessly frivolous. Yes. Can you tell us why you would describe your work that way? That would not necessarily be a way that I would describe your work, so I'm curious as to how you got to that. Well, I don't, I'm not curing cancer. Okay. And um, I'm, I don't think, I mean, the work is, I just like to make people laugh and I like to make myself laugh with the stuff, or at least I, I like to get them to the point where they go, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's really cool. Look at all those little hidden bits. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does strike me as a little bit frivolous, and it does strike me as a little bit, um, sort of, as I said, you know, overly, um, gratu- you know, gratuitously intricate, because it doesn't have to be that way, and it's probably in some instances, for, for a number of clients, I think it would be the absolutely wrong choice. But it's what I like to do. Now, is it something that you always wanted to do? Did you always, from the very beginning of your memory, want to be a designer and an artist and an illustrator? I knew I always wanted to be an artist. It was it was never any sort of question. It, you know, there were, I had other interests, of course. I have a life outside of you, Debbie. Come on. You do? Um, Why? Barely, barely. It's a fun world you live in. <laughs> I know. Um, and, but... I always knew that because that was that was sort of clearly the thing that I was good at and that was fun to me. I mean, I've been drawing since I can remember. I can't remember a time where I wasn't drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about your parents? Did they encourage you to go into art and design? Oh, absolutely. Um, and they knew it was such a such a lucrative career choice. <laughs> yes. Uh, I have to say, they there was never a moment in all my life where they said, "Well." Maybe you should have a backup plan. Maybe you should just, you know, consider dentistry. Mm-hmm. So did you um, ever have a backup plan? No. So, and you went to a wonderful school. You went to Art Center. That's true. 
And uh, from there, I, did you go directly from Art Center to Wyden and Kennedy? I did, yeah. They recruited me, and I, uh, within a month I started at Wyden and Kennedy. And, uh, but then you got fired. What I did. was that like? Tell us about getting fired from Wyden and Kennedy. Yeah, that only started becoming funny a lot later. <laughs> um, that that initially was not that fun, but uh, you know what? I was a I was not a good employee. Why not? I'll give that. Um, gratuitously ambitious again, and I wanted to do everything myself, and I had a bad sense of how to be, you know, how to work under a creative director that isn't a client. Mm-hmm. And it was just a bad fit. I just didn't fit in well there at all. At the same time, I've met a lot of my friends I met while working there, and there's some amazing people that um, still work there that are really close friends and also that have gone on and that have now become clients outside of the agency and clients and friends, I should say. And um, so I, I certainly can't look back and think, oh, this was a bad idea or this was a bad experience. But, man, that, that year, just I was just so unhappy because I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to be a good employee. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that the job for the first year out of school was to just, you know, go there, show up, and do whatever is asked of you right. and work as hard as possible. I mean, I was the guy who slept under his desk for three nights in a row. People would bring me T-shirts. Wow. Um, and... I didn't realize that there was a benefit to them for me standing up for myself and standing up for the the designs that I believe in. So I just kept churning and churning and churning. By the end, uh, by the end, uh, I cleared out my desk and I had 600 comps for uh, a campaign of three ads. Oh wow! And at that point, uh, one of the creative directors there, Whitney Lowe, said a very very important thing to me that I've always remembered where he said, this is stupid. Why would you be doing this? I said, well, they asked me to do all these comps. And he said, that's stupid because we're hiring you for your opinion. How can you have 600 opinions? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So you, in a sense, got fired for trying too hard. Yes. Also for oversleeping a lot because I was there till 4. Under the desk. Under the desk. So then you decided to just start your own thing. You went straight from, yeah. from that and used your unemployment to help start your own business? Yep. Now, we have a whole slew of callers <laughs> want to talk to you. I have at least two callers right off the bat that All want right. to, to say something and ask you questions. So first, we have Gregory, and then we have Louisa. I'm going to ask Louisa to please hold while Gregory is still on the line so we can take calls back to back. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Timmy. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Hi, Stefan. Hi, Gregory. Um, I, I appreciate that monologue because um, I work in a place where I have clothes I wear that are older than some of the people here, so that's, <laughs> that's really it's a little disturbing, I have to say. And uh, w- one of the questions I was going to ask was already a- uh, answered because I was going to ask Stefan about, you know, if your parents were very supportive of that, and, of course, that's a really wonderful thing that they were. Um, but I, the other question I would have is um, you, you've created all these CD covers, and I'm curious to know, do you ever feel that um, you you miss out on a graphic opportunity because uh, there are no longer albums in the sense of 33 and a third albums and there's so much more space that you could cover and that CD covers are so much smaller? You know, I've, I've actually done a few album covers because a lot of the artists have a great, great affection for them and so they, in, especially the bigger artists, will insist on a vinyl release still. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I never felt like I missed out because I really grew up more on CDs than on vinyl. 
Oh, that makes me feel good. Oh, yeah, oh, that's sorry. Great. Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> um, however, and so, I mean, that was the thing that got me excited was the sequential aspect of doing the booklets and having something that's hidden under the, the CD. And I, my work naturally is really small. All my original drawings mm -hmm. and everything is really small. So the um, the 5 by 5 inch format really suits me well. But, of course, now every once in a while when I do get to do uh, a full-on record, it's really thrilling and it's really great. I've asked that question before, and that, that really is the first time someone's given me an answer that I feel comfortable because I still want you to say, yeah, I really feel like I'm missing something. But, but by you <laughs> saying that, it, it really does explain it and, it, and it has its own merit, and I, I do appreciate that. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. All right, take care. Thanks, well, Debbie. Thank you. you. Know, and, of course, of course, the irony is that in, uh, in even like three or four years, somebody's going to call and say, do you ever miss... Do you ever feel that you missed out on designing CDs now oh, that it's course, all of course. Know, 300 all by 300 pixels? that little one by one or two by two right. square on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stefan, we also have another caller. We have Louisa, I believe, from New York. Louisa, I hope you're still there. Yes, I'm still here. Oh, good. Um, I want to know, out of the three TV shows that are my favorites, which one you prefer? Do you prefer The Simpsons, Family Guy, or South Park? What a great question. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I'm a traditionalist. I have to go with The Simpsons. The Simpsons is just, that's, I mean, that's a body of work. Right. You know, every once in a while you get bored with the stuff you're doing. You go, oh, man, I've done four brochures in a row. <laughs> man, right. what is it, 450 episodes now? It's 17 years or something? Yeah. That's, I mean, The Simpsons are the holy writ. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there is not, there is nary... A circumstance of life that isn't covered by a quote, as my friends are painfully aware because they can't escape it from me. I have a friend who's just like that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> Louisa, what about you? Which is your favorite? I'm gonna at this point in time, I'm gonna have to go with Family Guy. Mm. That I double over laughing watching that show these days. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not knocking Family Guy or South Park. I mean, I like them all. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm ecumenical. From Mary to Ecumenical, I'm loving this. Um, thank you for calling, Louisa. Stefan, we're going to take our break. We have a break. Uh, we'll be back in a few moments. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Stefan Bucher, and we will be back in a few moments, so please don't go away. Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now toll free 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. Voice America Business. Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. And I'm here to talk to you about something very creative, which is Fuse. Fuse is the annual event for designing culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Pierce in New York, and it's been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Be inspired by industry gurus like Malcolm Gladwell, a writer on science, culture, and human behavior, Peter Thum, who's the founder of Ethos Water, Kate Betts, 
editor at Time, Style, and Design, Erwin Simon, CEO of the Hain Celestial Group, and Stefan Sagemeister, one of today's most important designers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. I hope to see you there. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.31 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer and illustrator and writer, Stefan Bucher. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Stefan, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Stefan, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you're currently doing now, your wonderful website, and your wonderful upcoming book, Daily Monster. <laughs> so, yes. can you tell us about what happened to start it all off? On November 9th, 2006. Well, late at night on November 9th, I put a little blot of ink, a little drop of Sumi ink on paper. I blew it out with a straw, and um, I made a monster. I saw a monster in the ink blot, and I filmed the whole thing, and I put it on my then-just-recently-born blog. Now, I have so many questions. What <laughs> made you decide to blow it out of a straw? Not terribly familiar with that technique, and until I actually found out that's how you did it, I couldn't really make that out in the videos. And I, like, how is he getting it on the paper like that? <laughs> so what, like, what made you decide to do it out of a straw? Um, well, my, I love illustrators, and I was going to say this from before when you were asking about my parents, were they supportive or not? Uh, my dad is um, basically is, used to manage uh, companies as an accountant, and but he also volunteered at an illustration museum in Hanover, and so I grew up with all these fantastic illustrators, um, including Hans Georg Rauch and Kurt Halbritter. Halbritter, I shouldn't, I, I can pronounce it properly. Um, you know, I was warned about your name. <laughs> a very good mutual friend of ours said, "Make sure you say Stefan's name correctly." It's Stefan Bucher. Am I doing okay? Absolutely. No, you're doing beautifully. Good. Um, But one of the the illustrators I just love is Ralph Steadman, which ties back in with the whole Hunter Thompson thing. Yes. And uh, I think from there I must have picked it up that, I mean, certainly the eyes of the monsters are very, very Steadman-esque. And... um, 
the ink blowing also came from there, I think. But at the same time, I recently got a package from Germany from my parents that sent me drawings that I'd done about 15 years ago that had the blown ink. Really? Which I had absolutely no memory of. So how do you get the ink into the straw? Do you actually put the straw into the ink and... Oh, no. It's actually, the way it works, I actually put a few drops of ink on the paper, and then I take a straw and blow on it. Oh, see, I was imagining, and then I'm wondering, like, oh, my goodness, what if he inhales by accident? Then he gets <laughs> the ink all over his face and yeah, mouth. Yeah, black and lung. So, so, you, so you blow it out, right. and then, so what, how did you decide you wanted to do monsters? So was this something that was premeditated? Was it something that you thought about ahead of time and said, hmm, I think I'm going to do a monster every day for 100 days? Well, I was, um, I was in the process of getting my heart broken about two years ago, mm-hmm. and um, I was in a, in a very dark time, and I just wanted to do something happy. And I also wanted to do, I wanted <laughs> that to try, yeah, I wanted to try to do something. You know, frankly, I wanted to win somebody back. And, I, and you know, this is how I throw my little peacock wheel. Uh-huh. Um, I can't run fast or sing good. Oh. Uh, so this is what I can do. Mm-hmm. And at one point I was driving on the freeway, and I remember I was directly where the 110 becomes, uh, the, the 10 freeway becomes the 110 out here. And I was on that little curve. And I remember that a monster appeared on my left arm. Now, now I've read about this, and I, I was always assuming that, that this was metaphoric. No, no, this was, well, I mean, I saw it in my head. I don't think it was actually there, that, that being the fine line between, you know, schizophrenia and not. Mm-hmm. But it did, you know, I do see things. I don't take drugs or alcohol because I don't need to. So, so you really did see a monster? I did really see a monster crawling, you know, just sitting on my arm smiling at me, and I thought, oh, I should probably draw you. Um, and I did, and I then it was so much fun that I very quickly did 50 of them and made them into a book because that's what I do with stuff. I make it into books. And I thought, oh, well, this is going to be an absolute slam dunk. I sent it out to a couple of publishers, and then nothing happened for a long time. And I'm not patient this is this is another reason why I really suck as an employee, <laughs> is that I'm so impatient. I want things to happen right now. And that's, where, that's also where the Daily Monsters came from, because I wanted to keep myself entertained while the publishers were making up their minds on that first book, which was called Upstairs Neighbors. And how, how long were you giving people? Were you, were you hoping? How many, how many publishers did you send it to? Um, I sent it to, I think, five, six, seven publishers, and then I went to New York and just pounded the pavement and just really went from door to door, and I met some really wonderful people, but, you know, everybody was kind of like, eh, well, you know, this isn't really for us, and we don't really like it, um, or it doesn't really have a narrative arc, and it doesn't really have a three-part structure the way we need it to be, and I understand that. I mean, they they have a particular product that they need to sell, and this wasn't it, Um I've now seen, actually, that uh, Ricky Gervais in Britain has this series of books called Flanimals. Uh-huh. And Upstairs Neighbors would have basically been Flanimals, except, you know, with less funny stories and better drawings. Right. Um, but I, I, I gave people about... I ended up, some of the publishers I talked to for a year, you know, making revisions and doing all this stuff. And, and in the end, nothing happened with any of that. But at that... But, and at the time, I was so frustrated because I thought, oh, damn it, why is this not happening? But in the end, it obviously worked out beautifully 
because through my impatience, I started doing these, these video clips. And I was suddenly, without any advance planning on my part, a seed crystal for this community of, of creative people out there that would submit stories for the monsters in the, in the little comments function of the blog, which is not something that I solicited at all. You know, ever, somebody asked me initially, hey, what's this monster's name? I, I love that. And I said, you know, that's, that's really not my job. It's really up to you to decide what the monster's name is. And, and, so, and is that really how the little stories began? Yeah. For, for those listeners that might not be aware, please go immediately to dailymonster.com, and you'll see that Stefan has drawn, it's, it's, it's gone beyond 100 days now, but yeah. uh, 100 days of monsters that... Um, do you want to explain how you do it? I mean, you, know, you film yourself drawing, and then you use a, a camera to uh, you speed it up, and you put it on online for people to look at and watch uh, and see the whole process that you underwent to create this wonderful character that is a monster. And then people have now, of their own accord, created scenarios and storylines and character names and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly it. Is that anything else that I missed that I might have missed? Uh, yeah, I do it upside down. I know, I love that. I know that it's extraordinary. Your brain is is quite unique. Um, so, so well, it's, in some ways, it's it's wonderfully serendipitous that the publishers didn't pick up the original book idea because it was only later that you had the audience participation that the the story really came. I, I, I was much deeper and and so much more vibrant to have the participation of of your audience and to create these really mini movies. Absolutely, and at some point animation came into it. Yes, but it you know it is to to have this community of people that are that are sending so much good energy every day really makes the job easy uh, because there, there are obviously nights where I go oh man I just want to go to bed. Um, but knowing that people are getting as much of a kick out of it as they do, it makes it then really easy to say, you know what, pull it together, you know, sit down, set up the camera, and go. Um, and I've made so many friends through this experience and met so many really interesting people. Uh, it's just been an incredible experience. Well, Stefan, we have a, we have another caller on the line, and then I also want to play for our listeners the little sound clip that you gave me of you drawing, and and that accompanies. I don't know if it's the same clip that accompanies all the drawings, but it's certainly a clip that accompanied one drawing, and it's it's wonderful. Um, but first, I'd like to take Sam from Illinois. Sam, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hello, Stefan. This is Sam, Sam B. B. <laughs> I thought I'd uh, take the opportunity to talk to you on uh, on this fine program. Well, this is this is a momentous occasion. Sam <laughs> B here, Debbie. Thank you. Thank is, you so much for uh, calling. Is the number one contributor to the Monster Book. Oh, exciting! Congratulations. Sam has posted a story for every for every one of the hundred monsters. Nearly, I think I missed a couple in, in the very, very early stages. Hey, Sam, do you have any of the stories handy? Could you read us one? I, I can uh, certainly get on the website and find one, yeah. That would be amazing. So what, what it, as you're looking, what, it, what made you, what compelled you to start writing the stories for Daily Monster? 
Well, my initial uh, connection with Stefan was through uh, Step Magazine. He uh, used to write English wonderful column, yes. And uh, I work for uh, Step Magazine and, and um, Dynamic Graphics Magazine, so I kind of went onto his website after he judged for the Step 100 competition, and uh, just started, you know, kind of peeking in on his blog every once in a while, and then I uh, came home from Thanksgiving and saw that the Daily Monster thing had started and just was intrigued and started to post and, you know, it just went off from there. So it's been very fun. And so how do you how do you get your ideas for the scenarios for Daily Monster? Well, as, uh, as Stefan has mentioned, he's a very big Simpsons fan, and I am too. So a lot of mine come from Simpsons or from other, you know, web searches that I do that, you know, something might look familiar to me about his drawing and I'll, you know, zip over to Google or to Wikipedia and find some information out about some obscure thing and, and just elaborate on it. And that's, uh, I'm not a creative writing uh, background. I don't have that background, so I just kind of make it up as I go. <laughs> so uh, do you have one that you might be able to read us? Yes. I'm Before you start reading, though, can right you now. also, if you can, for our listeners, describe the monster that you are writing about. Okay. Um, let's see here. And what number was he or she? I'm going to try and find the very first one. Oh, yes. The very first one actually um, is, a, is a big bird with a big sort of um, golden brown beak and giant shoes. And is that, <laughs> is, was that the one that was created on November 9th? That was the very first one, yeah. Stefan, I don't know. I'm sure you know this, but yesterday... Uh, the wonderful website, Very Short List, uh, shortlisted your book. Yes, and, I saw that. Uh, if anybody wants to look immediately at the book and, and be linked into some of the, the marvelous movies, you can go to veryshortlist.com as well. Um, in the meantime, while we're looking, because I, I want to, there's so many other things that I want to talk to you about and, right. and share with the listeners. Um, Jeff, uh, Jeff is our producer at Voice America. Jeff, can you play the wonderful uh, little clip of the sound of Stefan drawing? Wonderful. Thank you. Now, Stefan, you said that people have been asking you for the sound because they find it relaxing and it helps put them to sleep. Yes. They, the, just the sped-up sound of the Sharpies on paper, for some reason, people just love. And um, somebody told me that it puts their little baby into an alpha state and makes it stop crying. Well, it does actually sound a little bit like a fluttery bird, Yeah. which I love. I love. So, Sam, do you have something for us? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the very first one, or the very first monster, uh, my post was, Bird of Prey, hardly, Toucan Stew is a bird of party. Seen from time to time at the hottest dance clubs New York City has to offer, Toucan Stew really brings the funk. He's been offered good money to promote, to promote new clubs, but as we all know, Toucan Stew doesn't advertise. <laughs> so that's an example, and then Stefan's uh, response to that is, Toucan Stew has Weezo for Tuzo. So, you know, it's a whole little Simpsons insider thing. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Could you read us one more? 
One more of mine? Sure. Uh, I will have to find one. Okay, well, while you're looking, let's read. I'm going to read well, one. Can I, well, can I read you one of them? Yes, please. This is Monster 51, and Monster 51 appears to be screaming. He has a mock turtleneck, as many of them do. Um, he's got a little hat, and he's got a green tongue. So Sam writes on January 7th, meet Dominic. He's the world's smallest watchmaker. Most people think he's Swiss, but I know the real truth. He grew up in South Chicago, a few classes on watchmaking, and just went with it. He's only about a foot tall, so his wee little hands can get into some places. His metal of choice used to be copper, until a fateful smelting accident that left his tongue horribly disfigured. It's solid copper now, and colored green as a result. Poor Dominic. Luckily, he's a great craftsman. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to add Victoria's uh, scenario. She wrote right below uh, Sam that very same day, and she wrote about your monster. Most of the gumshoes at Tattletail P.I. prefer grape popsicles, but Florentine here prefers lime wasabi. Flo is suffering from brain freeze sun explosion, having just gobbled a six-pack. Suffering is actually a misrepresentation. Flo derives great gustatory pleasure from these made-to-order confections. (laughs) So marvelous. So marvelous. So, Sam, do you have another one for us? Um, I don't have anything okay, to that's fine. Well, that, thank you so much for calling. Hey, it was great to talk to you, Stefan, and it yeah, was great to be on your show, Debbie. Thank you. Good to put a voice to all the great stories. <laughs> well, it was finally great to talk to you in person as well. So, Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So what's, what's next? Now that you've created this marvelous book, you've obviously started to animate your monsters. Are you thinking about perhaps the movie, 100 Days of Monsters, the movie? <laughs> Well, I'm always, television I'm always thinking about the movie. Um, I am talking about it with people, but it's it's one of those things where, you know, you, you get a lot of people that are telling you that that's going to happen. But, you know, I always, I, I'll just wait that one out, and I would love for it to happen, but it's, it's certainly not imminent. Now, you have a, a foreword in the book by Zay Frank, and I know that Zay was a very big early supporter and linked yeah. you on his very popular website um, after his experience having gone viral via the Internet and, and his artwork. Um, tell us about what your feelings are about the Internet as a, a forum for reaching an audience and why you chose to do it online in the way that you did. Yeah, the whole Internet thing? Mm-hmm. Not the whole really, Internet not, thing. Not really working out for me. <laughs> right, me either. Um, <laughs> It's oh, it's it's just incredible. It's absolutely marvelous. I mean, I couldn't have I couldn't have imagined doing this even ten years ago. Um, certainly didn't grow up wanting to have a presence on the internet because there was none. Um, I'm a guy who sits at a desk like fifteen hours a day, doodling and making designs and kerning things. Um, the, the ability for me to do that and still connect with people is is absolutely mind-blowing. So now that you, you did your daily, you did your 100 daily, mm-hmm. then you took a bit of a break, mm-hmm. and then you went back on. Yes. And now you're, I believe, about to start another whole series. Yes, I've done, uh, for the month of February, I've done Daily Monsters again. I'm up to number 162 today. 
uh, I'm going to, there's going to be about five more dailies. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I'm going to take a week off to go to Nebraska to paint a monster mural. Uh, then we're going to have a little launch event here in Los Angeles. And then I'll do another month of daily monsters in April leading up to the UK release of the book. And is the book available in bookstores now? Uh, it will be next week, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon and should start shipping, I think, on Monday. Now, has Daily Monster helped you attract and win other other clients? Are you, are you, are you, are you interested even in working um, for other clients anymore now that you've <laughs> got this wonderful... Yes, I am. ...wonderful way of communicating? Oh, yes, I am. What with the, what with the eating and the electricity bills and all that. <laughs> um, it's this, believe me, this is not a money-making venture, the Daily Monster. Um, no, I, you know what, and it's, it's wonderful because I have um, a really great slate of clients. Uh, I work with a gallery out here in Los Angeles, L.A. Louvre, and that's who I did the Hockney Catalog with. Um, and I'm working with uh, a research group right now that's doing research into uh, curing liver disease, things like that. So it's, it's just great because anything that keeps my mind occupied is a really, really good thing. Um, why? Because it goes crazy places. It's nice. It's nice to have a focus, and I like having a goal to work towards. Um, it's actually sort of surprisingly hard for me to just sit down and do something. I always need to do something specific that 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 puts me on a path towards something. How would you describe yourself? Do people ask you? Do you consider yourself an artist, a graphic designer, a writer? All when people say, "Hey." Stefan, what do you do? What's your 30-second elevator response? Well, the word I usually go for is gorgeous. But <laughs> other than that, um, I'm, I do, what, I, what I said in the beginning is, is really true, is that I, I feel like I do gratuitously, gratuitously ambitious stuff. Um, I just give, I give shape to information. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that I choose different information than most people. Now, so I think um, in an article I read about you, somebody asked for advice, and you said, two most important pieces of advice I can give anyone is this. Make yourself useful and don't be boring. If you look at yourself from the perspective of usefulness and interest, you will always have work. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. I thought it was a, a wonderful phrase. I thought our listeners would really enjoy it, but I want, I want more. I want to know more about that. <laughs> um, well, when, when you look at what makes somebody, uh, people you want to be around, if you look at the people in your life, the people you're probably spending time with are going to be people that do something that, uh, that advances life and also people that make you laugh. Um, and I think that's what it's really about. Is, is re- I mean, it's, it's very... It's, it's tri- I'm finding it a little tricky to elaborate on it because that's really what it boils down to, is if you're, not, if you're interesting, if, you, if you're not boring, and if you're doing something that's useful to somebody, then I really do think that you'll never be out of work and you'll never be alone. Have you always had work? Have you ever had to struggle to find work? There's been a couple of lean years around the same time that everybody had them, you know, 2001 and after. But I've been really, I've been incredibly lucky that uh, I've never had to advertise. I've always had word-of-mouth referrals, uh, and I've always had really interesting people that have come to me that have said, said, you know what, 
you're just as crazy as I am. Let's work together. <laughs> now, you also, speaking of crazy, you said that you often have a sort of fiendish theme in your life, and the illustrations are merely the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Do you think that you have deep-rooted issues that require fleshing out? Have you ever, have you ever seen an analyst, for example? Well, you know, maybe my shrink will call in, because that'll be a hoot. No, of course. Um, hey, listen, this is all about insecurity and about girls. Really? Of course it is. And anybody who, any, well, any, certainly any male person who tells you different is lying. Um, I think it, no, there, if you're secure in who you are and if you're really, if you've got great self-esteem and everything. I don't know anybody like that. Exactly. Why would you be in this career? Why wouldn't you be doing something, you know, that gets you, you know, huge fortunes or something like that, which there are certainly more efficient ways of going about that than drawing things. Or designing things. Um, no, this is all about. There's a little piece of the world. There's a little sort of eight and a half by eleven piece of the world that you have complete control over. Since the rest of the world frustratingly refuses my absolute control, um, <laughs> this is really you know this is the little piece I can claim, and um, you know and it may and that's that's my way of, of interacting with the world. You you once said that as you get a little bit older, I'm finding that all of the answers I thought I have that I had have morphed and multiplied into questions. And you created a poster a while back that listed 344 questions on the way to wisdom. Do you have a favorite question on your way to wisdom? Hmm. I think it's who are you. So I think I, I'm not sure. I think it's the first one is who are you, and it, are, there's a little sequence of who are you. Are there things that you don't like about yourself, and what's keeping you from changing that? And that is. How would you answer those questions? Oh, I'm in the process. I mean, the monsters are part of that process of answering that question. Of you know, can I can I surrender a little bit of control, um, and making and and sort of embracing the random and, embra and embracing uh, outside, not outside control, but outside input, and just to be a little bit more freewheeling about life. Well, I want to thank you for being the only person I know that actually could make monsters really, really beautiful. Thank you so much, Debbie. And it has really been an honor to talk to you, and I wish you all the best. I know the book is going to be a huge success www.dailymonster.com Go to very short list to buy the book And I just want to thank you so much For being on the show Thank you so much for having me Debbie It was a pleasure Thank you I would like to give a very special thanks To our sponsor Adobe To Brian, Jeff and Ruben at Voice America Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling And Edwin Rivera Thank you for all of your help Joining me next week on Design Matters Is designer, illustrator and author Laurie Rosenwald Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Hi, I'm Greg Fraley. 
author of Jack's Notebook. I'm a presenter at the Fuse Conference, the annual event for design, culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Piers in New York, and it's been a top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount, courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. Hope to see you there.